Read in the paper this morning. Sunday morning, segregation. This is the this morning St. Paul Pioneer Press. Races still worship separately. And the article went into some depth about how despite efforts that have been made, for the most part, blacks and whites still worship in different locations. And it went into the various reasons why that is, and basically the reasons they gave was that the black experience and the white experience are at this point so different that they find that each other's churches can't minister to their needs. And so they say about 90-95% of all whites worship in an almost all-white church and 90-95% of all blacks worship in an all-black church. I don't know what the statistics are for American Indians and Hmong and, and other minority groups. But there's something about that that deeply grieves me. I understand very clearly the difficulties that have to be overcome for these different people groups to get together. But I also have a deep, deep conviction that however difficult it is, it has got to happen. Being married is difficult sometimes. And the easy thing to do would be to go separate ways. But love requires you to hang in there and work it out. And if our experiences are that far apart, then they're that far apart. But love means that we have got to pray towards, work towards, preach towards, and make movement towards finding ways to integrate our experiences so that our worship has more in common. I was watching, I'm going to get to our text here in a second, but I was watching the Olympics, uh, the opening ceremonies the other night. Uh, Whatever, whatever channel it was, our small group got together Friday night and we spent some time watching the Olympics there. There's, what is it, 197 different countries that are gathered together, something like that. Uh, 14,000 different athletes from different countries. And as you're watching these opening ceremonies, and, and I don't know if there's ever been a ceremony that was quite as luxurious and, and beautiful as this ceremony. It went on and on and on. It must have cost millions and millions of dollars. But it's beautiful to see all these people from different nations, these athletes from different nations, and their different garb marching around, and it was just beautiful. It was just moving. And I'm thankful that we've got something, even if it's just sports, that will once every four years bring us together at some sort of symbolic expression of some kind of unity that we have. But it grieves me to think that for every athlete that is there, we've got two and a half security guards. Some 30,000 security guards to make sure that we don't kill each other. Afterwards, our small group got together and we started to worship and praise the Lord together and it was a very moving, healing time. But I got a picture in my mind of the kingdom of God. When there's going to be something like an Atlanta stadium, you guys, but maybe a hundred times that big, I don't know. And instead of 197 nations, there's going to be many more nations than that, and folks, we're not going to need twice that many security guards. A time when, when God's people will be together the way God had always intended it to be. 
instead of sports being the center, the thing that weaves our, our, our interests together, the thing that ties us together, the thing that gives us a reason to be together, it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Amen. Give the Lord a hand clap offering. Let me read to you two verses here. Revelations 22, verses 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is the life of God flowing out into the kingdom of God. This is the last chapter of the Bible. This is the final picture here. And speaking in very symbolic terms, but the life of God is going to flow out in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. It goes, verse 2 says, down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit. There's a lot of symbolism there that we're not going to get into. But it yields its fruit every month. And there's twelve months. And the leaves of the trees are for the healings of the nations. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And verse 3 says, No longer will there be any curse. The picture you have there in some symbolic terms, and for some reason it's hitting me right now pretty strongly, but in the kingdom of God, the life of God, of God sitting on the throne and of the Lamb is going to flow out into the new Jerusalem. And the leaves of the tree, which represent the fruitfulness of the life of God, is going to be there as a balm, a healing balm, a healing medication for the nations. You take... Certain leaves from certain trees, herbs, it's the only kind of medicine they knew back then. And you apply it to certain sorts of wounds and it brings healings. And what the Lord is saying is, I'm going to heal the wounds, the scars, the ruptures, the lesions that exist between the nations. And so in the kingdom of God, there'll be a healing of the nations. And there'll be a unity among the nations. And they will together worship the Lord. Revelations chapter 7. Verses 9 and 10 say this. We need so badly to keep this in the forefront of our minds. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, not 197, but from every nation, a great multitude that could not be counted. You can look over this multitude. And they're innumerable. It is so vast. It is so great. And it is so diverse. And people from every nation are there, but not just from every nation, but from every tribe of every nation. It says in verse 9, every people and language are represented there standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes, praise God. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, that we are robed with Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, nor no slave person or free person. Because the robe of Jesus Christ covers you completely. And every other thing that would separate you and distinguish you from another person becomes radically inconsequential when we're all wearing the same robe, the pure, pristine, white robe of righteousness purchased for us by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And all these nations, try to get a picture of it now, they're all there. 
and all their beautiful diversity, but we're all wearing the white, spotless robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And they're holding palm branches in their hands. Maybe it's the branches that are healing the nations. And they cried with a loud voice. I believe the Lord loves loud worship. Salvation belongs to our God. Once you get a picture of this, you guys, salvation, which we all have in common, these white robes that we all have in common, the thing that unites us here, it belongs to our God, our God. The African God and the white person's God and the Hispanic God and the Latino God, it's our God we have this in common. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. You talk about diversity. We, we don't even just have humans here. We've got, we've got these four living creatures, whatever they are, and all these angels. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise, and glory, and wisdom, and thanks, and honor, and power, and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And you guys, when we are there worshiping the Lord like this, it is going to make this Atlantic celebration, praise God for that, praise God for the Olympics, but it's going to make that look like such a puny little flicker as the people of God roar out praise to their Lord. Let's pray here for a second. Father, let your word go forth here this morning. Lord, I, I just have so much on my heart and so much in my head that I'm not even sure how to organize it to, to make it come out here in the right way, Lord. And you didn't, never, didn't really give me a real clear roadmap on this ahead of time. Lord, we're just going to trust you to bring forth your word here and to make it powerful. And God, I would just pray here, I would pray here, Lord, that this would communicate a vision that would inspire change in us, change in our attitudes and change in our behavior and change in our congregation, Lord. And Lord, even by your will, let it ripple out to affect other congregations here in the Twin Cities, Lord. And Lord, at the very beginning here, I want to come against a spirit that causes racial division. And it is a stronghold, Lord. And in Jesus' name, I want to rebuke everything, every hostility, every suspicion, every fear, Lord God, that would grip our hearts and our mind, every, every prejudice that is there, however subtle. And Lord God, I pray that you'd be our warrior going ahead of us to begin to bring this vision into reality. But you've got to do it, Lord. We do not have a program in our back pocket for this one. Nevertheless, Lord God, let the truth be spoken. Let it go forth with power. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to spend a couple weeks here talking about this issue. And if you're like me, you might be thinking something like this. Why, what would warrant spending three or four, and who knows how long the Lord will lead us to talk on this, three or four weeks on racism and racism in, racism in the church racial reconciliation in the church. You might think, many people think, in fact, I think most white evangelicals think that racism is more of a peripheral issue. That's why it's rarely preached on in the church, and if it is preached on, it's preached on on a reconciliation Sunday, but that's all you're going to hear about it, and then it goes on from there. More often than not, you don't hear anything about this issue. It's seen among some conservative evangelicals as being a politically correct issue as being sort of a trend thing, or seen as something that liberal churches preach on. Liberal churches are involved in social action, you know, and, but they don't really preach the real gospel, they preach social action, and they take away the cross and our need for forgiveness, and they think that doing good works is what it's all about. And racism, 
This is one of the most unfortunate things that I can think of, but racism is seen as being a liberal issue. And all I want to do this morning is to try to explode that misconception, that this is a peripheral issue, that this is something that is secondary, that this is something that is politically correct, or that this is something that is liberal. I want you to know that our motivation for talking about this issue has less than nothing to do with any of that. If this happens to be something that is politically correct, well, then that's, that's just one more obstacle I've got to overcome in preaching about it. But it certainly isn't one reason that I have for it. My conviction here is that there is perhaps no greater area that the white evangelical church has been more remiss on than preaching against racism and working toward to bring about more diversity in the body of Christ. And I believe that because I believe that this issue is central to the gospel. It's for biblical reasons that I hold that conviction. And what I want to share with you this morning are some of those biblical reasons why I hold that, why I think this is a centrally important issue for biblical reasons and for no other. And to do that, the only way I know how to do that is to kind of talk about the history of the entire world. Um, from, the pers from God's perspective on racial issues, I'm going to do a brief overview of the history of the world in 15 minutes on this issue. Let's start at creation. Because I'm, I'm talking about a paradigm shift here, a way of looking at scripture. I think if we see the way God sees, we're going to see that this has been an important issue for God all along. It's just been recent times that we've made it a, a peripheral issue. And I've got a good Bible reader here. So, uh, David, would you read Genesis? Let's go back to the beginning of creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And then also read 3, 320. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. And what does Genesis 3.20 say? Genesis 3.20. Adam named his wife Eve because she become the mother of all the living. Okay, here's the point of this. The very beginning in creation, what you see is this. God made every species according to its kind, that it would bring forth its own kind. And it's the pinnacle of the whole creation he made human beings. In the same way that he made each of the different species to bring forth its own kind, he made human beings to bring forth their own kind. And they are in their unity amidst their diversity in the image of God. And from a biblical perspective, we all have this in common. If you are a human being, you are made in the image of God. It is the fact that you are a human being. You belong to the human race that makes you part of the image of God, that makes you reflect the image of God. The Bible says that all of us, this is why Eve is called Eve, all of us have one ultimate mother. We go back to one mother. We are all, in some sense, distant relatives. And from a biblical perspective, the human race is one race. We have one mother, we have one God. There's an incredible and very beautiful diversity that characterizes that oneness. 
But that diversity just adds to the beauty. It adds to the fact that we reflect the image of God. But it's the unity that receives the emphasis in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to think about this for a second. This is a, a new thing I'm just going to lay on you. Or maybe new, maybe it's not new. But what is a race? We talk about different races of people. I want you to ask the question, what is that? I read three books this week on, the, on issues of race, and I scanned another four, and I read seven articles on this topic as I was preparing for this. And here's what I found. No one agrees about what a race is. One person said there are three major races. Another, another scholar argued that there are 36 different races. What's odd about this category of race is that it has no application outside of the human sphere. It is not a proper biological term. We talk about different kinds of animals, mammals and, and, uh, and reptiles and amphibians, okay, so we have different kinds of animals, and we talk about different species of animals within, within each of those kinds, but where does the concept of race fit in? What is a race? No one agrees upon the criteria of race. No one agrees upon what distinguishes between the races. Listen to this. From a biblical, the Bible, the Bible does not have a concept of race. There's no talk about races in the Bible. There's no, they don't break down people categories in those terms. You do have a concept of different nations. You have a concept of different cultures. But never is there a concept that people are fundamentally different according to their race. From a scriptural perspective, the fact that we have one creator, the fact that we all come from one mother, the fact that we have the whole DNA structure the same, the fact that we can interbreed means that from God's perspective, there's one race of people. And that is us. It's the human race. And the divisions that are there do not fundamentally divide us. They just beautifully reflect the unity that is supposed to be there. But God... What we see revealed in, in the word is that sin entered the picture. In Genesis chapter 4, sin en Genesis, end of, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the picture. And where sin is, there, there become, comes division. We stop getting our life from God, our worth from God, our creator. And we start trying to get life from the things that are around us. And one of the easiest ways, the most petty ways of getting life from the world around you instead of from your Lord is to try to feel special in terms of how you look, in terms of your skin color, in terms of what you can do. And so where, where there is sin, there is divisions. And so in Genesis 4, right away we find Cain rising up against Abel. There are religious divisions that are introduced in, into the kingdom. And in chapter 4 we find, for the first time in the genealogy of, of Genesis chapter 4, people begin to identify themselves according to what they are good at. And so it lists a number of different lineages of people who were good at Jubal. The, the, the descendants of Jubal were good at music. The descendants of, what is it, Zobal were good at making tools. The descendants of Lamach were, were mighty warriors. The descendants of uh, Adea were, were good at raising livestock. What you have here, and you're going to find this wherever you find sin, as people begin to identify not with the fact that they all come from the same mother, they begin to identify not with the fact that they come from the same creator, but they begin to identify with, a, with, with what makes them unique, with what makes them different, with what, make, with what they can do better than somebody else. And divisions are introduced into the creation. And then in Genesis chapter 11 you find this. The one thing that we had in common, still despite the divisions, after the flood now, 
was that the Bible says we began to, humanity, which still spoke one language and lived in the same area, began to build a huge tower to try to get up to the gods. In fact, this is an account, interestingly enough, that you can find in other ancient literature. A recollection that once upon a time, perhaps eight, ten thousand 10,000 years ago, humanity united to rally against God under the auspices of a false religion. And scholars debate what this mighty tower was about. You read about it in Genesis chapter 11. It's called the Tower of Babel. Some say that it was some sort of monument dedicated to false gods upon which human beings would be sacrificed on the basis of parallels that we find among the Aztecs and whatnot. But in any case, humanity was being rallied around, was coming together, all right, but under a false religion in honor to false gods. And so the Bible says that the Lord came down and he confused the languages. That's why it's called the Tower of Babel. Babel in Hebrew means uh, to confuse or confusion. And it's at that point, the Bible says, that people began to go to the different areas on the earth. They were scattered, verse 8 says, throughout the entire world. It is because of this scattering and because of the isolation between people groups that we find at this point that the gene pools among each of these people groups begins to be more selective. The diversity begins to be watered down. And so each group, out of their isolation and the particular climate and the particular cultures that they adopt, develop different facial characteristics, different heights and whatnot, all that diversity, which was there, it was in the gene pool all along, but it becomes now to be tagged with certain groups because of this isolation. What we need to understand is that this was not something God desired. It was the result of sin. The separation, the isolation, the barriers was not part of God's original design. It was an accommodation to keep things from getting worse than they were. And all along, God desperately and passionately desired, looked for, worked for a time when he would reverse the babble, reverse the babbling, if you will, reverse the confusion, reverse the isolation, and bring the nations together again. And so in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. And the first thing he says to Abraham is this, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of the nations. As the stars are in the sky, so shall your children be. You shall be the father of all who believe. Now follow this. He's saying, Abraham, through you, through your descendants, I'm going to be working to bring back what was lost at Babel. And now humanity will be reunited, not under a false religion, not rallied around a false god, not working towards destruction, but they shall be united around what they believe. They'll be united around the true God, the true faith. You're going to be the father of all those nations. And so we find that the Jews, the, the Israelite nation, comes out of Abraham. They're his descendants. And they're called God's chosen people. But in the Old Testament, that never has the connotation that God loves them more than other people. You find over and over and over again the Lord telling Israel that he has raised them up for a purpose. And the purpose that God had raised up Israel was to reach out to the nations, to extend, to be a light to the darkness, to, bring the, to recover, to recover the truth of who God is and the truth of what God is like to the nations. They were to be, as the Old Testament says, a priest to the nations. It was never supposed to be an us-them sort of a thing. God has always been in love with the nations. 
As that began to fail, the Lord begins to give us prophecies about one who will come out of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, a Messiah, which means an anointed one, a Savior. And in him, the Bible says, the nations will be united. And I'm trying to develop the storyline here so that you can begin to get a sense of how central this racial thing is to the biblical narrative. Psalms, chapter 2, verse 8, says that says of the Son of God, the Messiah, the nations shall be is his inheritance. And what it's saying there is that what the Lord shall do, what the Son of God shall do, shall earn for him the right to inherit all the nations. It will give him the privilege of saying to all the nations, all the people, we would say all the races, though the Bible never talks like that, but he shall say, you all belong to me. And start to reverse the destruction and separation and isolation that was done at Babel. Prophecy upon prophecy speaks in this way. Let me just read one other prophecy. It comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 13, speaking about the Messiah, who will be a root of Jesse. That just simply means a descendant of Jesse, who was uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a descendant of Abraham, ultimately. What does it say, David? In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Okay, hang on a second here. Just, I just gives this picture. It just came to me. But man, you know, on, on Friday night, as they were having the opening uh, ceremonies, they had all these banners. Different nations had their banners, their flags. They were waving them. They were proud of them, and that's a good thing. Fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But they were celebrating that. And all, there's all these different banners. But in that day, the Bible says, according to Isaiah chapter 11, there'll be one banner. And that banner will be uniting all of us. And that banner will be the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the root of Jesse. Go on. What does it say? In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and, gather the, the nations. Go ahead. and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will, be, will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile toward Ephraim. Okay, the Lord's taking the worst case scenario. Ephraim and Judah at this point hated each other. They were at war with each other. They were just striving with one another. They, they detested one another. So the Lord picks out the worst case scenario. You know how it's going to be when, when the sun comes, when, the, when, when the, the kingdom is set up? It's going to be so radical that this tension between you two nations, this fighting, this, this nationalism that's going on between you two, this banner is going to encompass even you, and there will be peace among the nations. And Isaiah chapter 55, read it sometime, it is so beautiful. But the Lord says, come whoever wants to come and buy milk without money and have uh, splendor without any cost. It's all free. And then he says uh, to Israel, I have raised you up. And he's speaking both to Israel and to now to the Messiah, who is to come out of Israel. I've raised you up to be a beacon for the people to reach out to the people, to invite the people to come unto me. And then he says in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 55, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my thoughts are higher than yours. We sometimes quote that verse as a nice phrase when things go bad in our life and we say, well, God has a reason for things. But that verse has nothing to do with that. That verse has to do with the issue of racism. And what the Lord is saying there is this, Israel... 
You keep on wanting to box me in. You think that I am just your God. You think that your theology encompasses me. You, you just want me to be there for you, and we're saved, and you're not, and we're special, and you're not. But I don't think like you think on this one, folks. My ways are way higher than your ways. My heart is way bigger than your heart. I got a love. I got an aspiration. I got a desire for all the nations. And the only reason why I pour special privileges on you is so that you can spread that love and spread that message and spread that good news out to the nations. That whosoever will come is invited to come unto me. That's your job, Israel. But it's in the Messiah that that's going to be accomplished. And the Messiah comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, and you see by his life, he begins to live out those prophecies. He begins to bring into reality the heart of God to reverse Babel. And so you see Jesus throughout his ministry in a way that is just mind-blowing in the first century, tearing down the walls of, of, of gender discrimination as he reaches out to women, and he actually treats them in a way that a first century Jewish male never treated them. He treats them as though they were really made in the image of God. He treats them with dignity and respect. And he starts blowing up the distinctions, of, of the class distinctions. He blows up the religious, self-righteous, pompous distinctions. He disses the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He reaches out to the prostitutes. That's what got him crucified. And then he blows apart the nationalistic or racial distinctions that have been going on there. The Jews hated the Samaritans. So Jesus goes out of his way in John chapter 4 to talk to and minister to and love this Samaritan woman who had been living with five different men. And he tells this parable of the good Samaritan who did what none of the religious hobnobbers would do. He stopped to help somebody who was in a bad way on the highway. A good Samaritan. He's in their face about this whole thing. But it's mainly in the death of Jesus Christ that God achieves, he achieves his goal of reversing Babel in the death of Jesus Christ. What does Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16? For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I'll read that again, but read, read half that speed. Listen to this. For he himself That's Christ. is our peace. Our peace. Who has made the two one. The two, he's talking there about the biggest racial distinction that existed at the time, or the biggest national distinction at the time, and that is between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he's saying, he is our peace, Jew and Gentile, and he has made the two one. Okay, what does it say then? And has destroyed the barrier, Hallelujah. the dividing wall of hostility. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What does the next verse say? By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. Listen to this. Thus making peace. Say, read that last phrase again. Thus making peace. His purpose was? His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. Okay, you guys, this is it in a nutshell. Lord, give us the words here in a nice, succinct way. And tell the person back there who's playing guitar to stop playing guitar. It's distracting. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was not hear this music in the background. Wasn't that nice dinner music? Um, the Lord in himself has brought peace. Not will bring it, but now has brought it. In principle, has purchased it. And he creates in himself, by his death on the cross, he creates in himself one new man. One new humankind, as it were. What this really is is simply a restoration of what God desired all along. Jesus Christ. Because of his sacrifice on Calvary, 
because of what he intended to do by dying on the cross, because of all the prophecies that were there that said that he shall inherit the nations, he aimed at, strove for, and purchased through his death the unity of the peoples, bringing them together, creating one race, fulfilling the prophecy to Abraham that you shall be the father of many nations, the father of all who believe. In the body of Jesus Christ, if we can conceive of it, the Lord reaches out and embraces all the different peoples, all the different nations, all the different cultures, and he says, come unto me, be under this umbrella, and he brings about the peace. He destroys the walls of hostility that were there between the races. He destroys the barriers that were there. What we've got to see is this. Part of the reason, a central part of the reason why Jesus Christ shed his blood, his precious blood, why he died a hellish death on the cross, was to reconcile us to God? Yes. But the opposite side of the coin to that, and it's just as central, is to reconcile us to each other. To reverse the power of Babel. He died that Babel would be reversed. He died that the isolationism among the peoples would be, re would be done away with. He died that the barriers the hostility, the eyes of suspicion, the fears that exist there, the violence that exists there. He died that that might come to an end. He died that Babel would be no more. He died that God's goal to have one people under one God and one faith would be achieved. That's one of the reasons why he shed his blood. And the place where that's got to happen is in the church of Jesus Christ. We are called the body of Christ. And when when Paul says he, in one body, creates a new man, a new race, a new humanity, he's talking both about the incarnate body of Jesus Christ, but he's also talking about his body here in the church. We are the continuation of the person of Jesus Christ here on this earth. And that's why it is no accident, it is no mistake, it's no coincidence that when God pours out his Spirit on the day of Pentecost, praise God, he pours out his spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit now is simply the spirit of Jesus Christ. He pours out his spirit on the day of Pentecost, and what happens is they begin to speak in other tongues. And all the people that are around them, all the different nations that are around them, they all hear them proclaim the glory of God in their own tongue. And what is going on there? What is God trying to say to us? He's simply saying this. When the Spirit of God is poured out, when the life of Jesus Christ begins to flow on you, when that river that's going to be flowing down the New Jerusalem, when that flows on the church and it's here already, that stuff that's in the New Jerusalem, that life is here, it's in you, it's in me. Where that life is, where that spirit is, where that power is, the language barriers and the cultural barriers and the racial barriers, they start to come down. They've got to start to come down. People begin to understand one another when before they didn't understand one another. People begin to dwell together when before they didn't dwell together. And the artificial walls of sin that Satan puts up begin to come down, and the Spirit of God has his way. And Jesus says in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be witnesses to me. You're going to be pointing to the reality of who I am. That's what a witness is. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the outermost parts of the world. The prophecy that God gave way back in Isaiah now comes to fruition, and it's in the church. What we've got to see is that this is not an option for us. Not if we name the name of Christ. And I'm not trying to come up with a simplistic solution. I'm just trying to pose to us here the vision. This is not an option. There are people, and in some ways this, this, this magazine art, or this newspaper article was almost saying this, that it just seems natural that blacks worship in one place and whites in another and, and, and the Hmong have their own place. And I understand the, the, the issues about, about, about language and, and culture and sometimes you've got to start there. 
But there are people out there, in fact, a good many people out there, a lot of scholars out there that are saying, if you want to grow a church, if you want to really minister to people, well, white people like to worship with white people. It's just their way. And black people like to worship with black people. It's just their way. It's called the homogenous church growth principle. Find a church that's homogenous and it will grow. And you start to try to diversify it, and no, people don't like that. And therefore, we should just target one group and understand that until Jesus comes back, it's just going to be this way. Jesus died to forgive us our sins. And I think you could grow a church pretty fast if you just didn't preach. Every time I teach, preach about sin, it clears out people. It's like, oh, I get offended at that. We, we should call this the non-sin church growth principle. Oh, yeah, Jesus died for it, but we really can't expect that to bring that into reality until he comes back. So why preach about sin? Why preach that you need to be forgiven of your sin? Jesus died that we might be healed. By his stripes we are healed. And there's a lot of places that says, you know, it's just not convenient to preach about that. People get weird. People get flaky when you start preaching about that. We're just not going to talk about that. But see, if it was important enough for Jesus Christ to spill his blood over, we dare not fail to preach about it. Amen? If Jesus Christ purchased it, our only reason for being is to manifest the truth of who Jesus is. The only reason why we exist as a body, the only reason why there is a church, is to point to Jesus Christ and to say, this is what's true about Jesus Christ. And if it's true that his blood forgives us of our sins, we've got to preach forgiveness and we've got to preach sin. And if, if Jesus Christ died to make us live different, to, to bring about holy living, then however unpopular it may be, we've got to preach about the importance of holy living. And if Jesus Christ died that we, be, we could be healed of our diseases, then however unpopular it is, it just doesn't matter. We've got to preach that healing is available, available because of the cross. And if Jesus died to bring back the people so that they could dwell together and love one another and, and be with one another and have one Lord in common, then we have got to, we've got to, this is non-negotiable, we've got to preach towards, work towards, pray towards that end. Amen. It's part of the gospel. It's part of the gospel. To do anything less is to insult the glory of God. It's, it is to say, Lord, you wasted your blood on that one. And that can never be. Finally, finally, John chapter 17. Listen to this. Listen to this one. This is, this is the most powerful one. The worship team, get ready. John 17, 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those this, who will this is This is the prayer of a dying man. Jesus is just ready to go to the cross, okay? This is his last prayer. Listen to this now. This I is pray his also last for prayer. Those. His final word. This is incredible. He's, he's going to leave now. He wants us to remember this. Here's his last word. Go ahead. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me. Father, and I'm in I you. pray that they all may be one, just as we are one, you and I. Unity and diversity, the Father and the Son. Pray, God, that they'll have that same kind of unity. Go on. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. How is the world going to believe that? Jesus was sent by the Father. It is by the oneness of the church. I pray that they may be one, even as we are one, so that the world may believe. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and I have loved them even oh, yeah. as you have loved me. Here it is, folks, in a nutshell. I've given them the glory. What is the glory of God he's talking about here? It is the glory of unity, of love, amidst diversity. That is the glory of God, folks. To the degree that that is not a reality, 
There is no glory of God. That's what he's saying here. He's praying this prayer. And it is when the world can see the glory of God. It's when the world can see that there's a reality to the body of Christ that is not out there in the world. It's when they see that Christians are able to unite under Jesus Christ in a way that people who aren't under Jesus Christ can't unite. That's what gives reality to our gospel. When we say Jesus Christ was sent by the Father, the way that that has bite, the way that has reality, the way it has conviction, the way it gets through to them is when they can see the reality of it. They can see that it's real. And the prayer that Jesus is praying here is this. The way they see it is real is when we can manifest a love and a unity and a togetherness that they are not capable of. I don't believe, I just don't believe that there's any solution that the world's going to hit on that's going to solve this racial problem in our culture. I, I can pray for that, I hope for that, but I don't think they're going to be able to do it. But what it does is it presents a wonderful opportunity for the church. If we're willing to wrestle with this, and if we're willing to be bold on this, it presents a tremendous opportunity for us to show them the reality of Jesus Christ by showing them the glory of God, by showing them white people and black people and Hispanic people and Hmong people who love one another and are willing to work together to overcome the different obstacles that are there and to worship God together. And the goal of the whole thing from beginning to end, it was there at the beginning, it's going to be there at the end, is, is Revelations chapter 7. Come out, you guys. Revelations chapter 7. And we're going to end just by proclaiming this. In future weeks, we're going to be talking about how do we do this. And I don't even have a program, but by next week, God will give us one. Okay, no. <laughs> um, the goal of the whole thing is this. For there to be a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever.